Welcome to Jews on Film. My name is Harry Adensaster. I've got a degree in film studies. I am Jewish, and I am delighted, as always, to be joined by my co-host, Daniel Zana. Hey, Harry. My name is Daniel Zana. I am a documentary filmmaker, a video editor, and an amateur studio fixer. Today, we are talking about the movie Hail Caesar, directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, which IMDb describes as a Hollywood fixer in the 1950s who works to keep the studio stars in line. And with us today to discuss that is the author of Beat the Devils and his brand new book, Sunset Empire, out on March 28th. Josh Weiss, welcome to Jews on Film. Thanks so much for having me. And I too am a Jew as well. Just wanted to uh, make that clear as well. Right on. <laughs> Some yeah. Context, yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. So like I mentioned, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about the movie Hail Caesar, uh, directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. You know, just to start out, we wanted to know sort of uh, why you picked this film and sort of how it ties into your novels. You know, my book takes place in an alternate version of the 1950s, but it is still set in that kind of golden age Hollywood period, that kind of classic noir vibe. You can't really do noir without Los Angeles. I thought about setting it in Manhattan, but realized you got to do it in kind of the land of celebrity and glamour. Um, so I just kind of, I love that romanticized version of old Hollywood. And um, Hell Caesar really kind of pokes one at that era about like just how wacky the studio system was and then how you know this guy had to uh keep keep the actors in line so it just felt like the uh the perfect thing to discuss and obviously there's some you know elements of faith in the film and uh there is a rabbi um so yeah i think that it's just the perfect film to discuss uh in tandem with my books yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, as, as you know, as we've done this podcast, we watch out for the Jewishness in films. It, it changes the way you look at these movies. And, you know, Rabbi Counter, we always we always clock it when we see <laughs> one. But like you said, this movie really does discuss big themes of, you know, faith and guilt and a lot of confession, you know, which I'm sure we'll talk about. So it's it feels like ripe for discussion uh, over here. So I'm really excited to get into it. I started the book. And then I immediately thought, I'm like, oh, that opening scene where he goes to John Huston's house and he sees John Huston and Walter Cronkite. I immediately like pictured Eddie Mannix, like looking at his watch, like, you know, so it was very much like that's sort of why I suggested it. I felt like they were a perfect pairing for each other. And mm -hmm. I just like love the 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 milieu, as it were, you know, setting it in, in this sort of time and this sort of alternate history of it all. I really enjoyed it. And uh any plans to bring the Morris Baker character and some of his stories to other uh, mediums? You know, that is the dream. Um, you know, the, the screen rights are still available. So if any, uh, you know, Cohen brothers, if you're listening, uh, I know you'll be on next week, but uh, just call my agent, Scott Miller, try to media group and, uh, you know, scoop up those rights because uh, I'd love to see this, this universe on the screen in some way. Yeah. I think that would be amazing. I think, you know, I think it's time for Elliot Gould's long goodbye uh, Philip Marlowe character to pass the torch to our next uh, Jewish detective and, you know, sort of see him on screen. Any dream casting? Um, you know, I there's two guys. Uh, one is Matthew Reese. Oh, oh, uh, oh, oh. <laughs> or Daniel Zana. Yeah. Huh? Okay. Like, but it's you're, okay. you're gonna have to audition like everyone else, Dan. Yeah. I mean, you said you two guys, and then I got really uh, excited. You know. Uh, after you two. I mean, of course. Of course. Um, yeah, so like Matthew Reese, uh, Perry Mason fame. Uh, oh, sure. But he's he's kind of already in that in that yeah. uh, in that world. And then yeah. uh, Morgan Spector played the dad in the plot against America. Okay. Um, cool. Which you know, going back to you know what we we're talking about, you know, infusing you know Philip Roth, you know, just infusing Jewishness into whatever you do. Mm -hmm. No doubt. Um, so yeah, those are the two guys. If you guys are listening, Matthew Morgan, 
start to start to preparing for the audition. That sounds great. Yeah, no, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited to check this out. And like, maybe you could work in. There's like, you know, two radio broadcasters. You know, I, I don't know. Just just angling for an audition here. You know. All right. Yeah. So, anywho, you'll be uh, first in line. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Before we get, uh, you know. So it sounds like there's a pretty strong connection between your books and the film. Um, and I teased it just up top with our little one-line summary, but why don't we just get into a quick synopsis of what the film's about, and uh, then we can kind of pull it apart and find those Jewish elements. That, uh, that sounds great. So what we're going to do here is a little bit different for people who have listened to past episodes of the podcast. Normally, we kind of break down the plot, go through it beat by beat over the course of an extended conversation, and instead... We've launched the synopsis kind of to the top. We're going to go through, we're going to run through the whole movie for those of you who have seen it, but maybe not in a minute and want to revisit some of the ideas that are in there. Or for those of you who might not have checked it out yet, just to catch you up to speed a little bit, but I'm going to take the next minute and a half or so to uh, to run through some of the plot. And right after that, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll throw it to break and then we'll jump in with some questions about the movie. I just want to make sure you got the note, Harry. So because, you know, just like Purim and Haman's Sons, I would appreciate it if you did this entire synopsis in one breath. Yeah. Okay, sure. great. Perfect. Great. All right. If I pass out, uh, <laughs> All you right. know, maybe that won't make it into the recording. We'll edit it back in. But, sure. Uh, uh, just to give, uh, just to remind everyone about the movie. So uh, Eddie, uh, played by Josh Brolin, he's a fixer, like you mentioned, Daniel, for Capitol Pictures Studio, keeping the actors in the studio happy and free from controversy. The movie largely follows him as he moves across different crises. Eddie watches a rough cut of the new Jesus film, Hail Caesar, and consults with a rabbi, some Christian clergyman, on how to depict Jesus without offending anyone. The studio head has Eddie cast Western star Hobie Doyle as the lead in Lawrence Lorenz's film, Merrily We Dance. Hobie and the director clash as Hobie struggles to shed his southern drawl and adopt a British accent. Eddie meets with newly pregnant musical actress Deanna Moran and pushes her to get married in order to preserve her innocent image. An extra on the Hail Caesar set, on the, on the Hail Caesar set, drugs lead actor Baird Whitlock and kidnaps him from the set. We, uh, we then see Whitlock wakes up in a beachside house and is met by a group of communist Hollywood writers who felt cheated by the studio and are using him to fight back. Eddie receives a ransom note from the communists demanding $100,000, and while in a meeting with Hobie, he prepares the briefcase of money and explains the situation to him. All the while, Eddie is pursued by a man from Lockheed Martin trying to convince him to leave Hollywood behind and go work for him. We also meet actor Burt Gurney in a musical as a sailor who sings a song with his comrades at a bar seeing, you know, talking about seeing no dames while at sea. That was one of my favorite scenes. Uh, Eddie solves Deanna's situation by arranging a fall guy to register the child in his name so she could disappear for nine months and later adopt the child in the eyes of the public. While at a premiere party for the Western film, Hobie notices Burt take the briefcase that Eddie left for the kidnappers. He follows him to the house and finds Baird alone, who reluctantly joins Hobie back to the studio. Meanwhile, the communist writers and Bert journey to the middle of the ocean with a briefcase. A Soviet submarine rises up and Bert gets on board. The writers try to donate the money to the cause, but it ends up in the ocean. Eddie convinces Baird to return to set and forget what he learned from the communists. And finally, the film ends with Eddie in a confessional booth. He's convinced to reject the other offer and keep his job as the studio's fixer. <sighs> actually was a couple of breaths. But, uh, but yeah, just... Just wanted to set the scene a little bit, run through what the movie is. There's, there's a bunch of things in there that I'm hoping that we can discuss after the break. But why don't we take a quick break, jump back in and go over some of our general thoughts on the movie. Sounds great. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Josh Weiss discussing Hail Caesar. Harry, why don't you get us started? 
Yeah, sure. I I, I kind of wanted just to hear everyone's general thoughts rewatching this movie. You know, I know you you recommended this movie, Josh, and I know it's very close to your book. Just first before we start, did you rewatch it ahead of the podcast, or was this? Yeah, I had. I just rewatched it the other night. Um, funnily enough, I had not seen it since I saw it at the press screening in college. Um, okay. So it was it was great to revisit it, and it was uh, it was better than I than I remembered. Honestly, I guess now now that I'm on the other side of my book. Because um, this film just kept coming back to me during the writing process, you know, just kind of the satire and the satire element and just kind of how ridiculous that whole time period was in terms of, you know, like weeding out communists. So that was kind of always in the back of my mind. Um, and then rewatching it, it was, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a real delight, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I had a similar experience. I, I didn't go to uh, an early press screening to get to see it, but I did watch it when it came out in theaters. And I think I definitely enjoyed it more this time. I, I remembered coming out a little bit mixed, a lot of hype around a new Coen Brothers movie, and it kind of it never hit the highs. I was I was a little bit confused about the structure, and I think especially watching it this time, knowing, you know, we're just going to bounce around and it's all going to kind of work itself out, which I think thematically is pretty important, but just that, that structure I wasn't prepared for. But then this time, I, I actually, uh, it really came together nicely. I, I also had a really interesting experience watching it in the context of this podcast this time, trying to understand it, you know, as a Jewish film. I, I remembered that scene with the rabbi in the beginning, and that was kind of what I clocked as soon as we chose this movie. Like, I cannot wait to go in on that. And I will after we get through some of our general thoughts. But uh, like you were saying, thematically, there's especially a lot of Jews and and especially and I, I know we'll get into the the communist, you know, former writers, which I know historically was likely a Jewish group, but also in in terms of the way that the Coen brothers cast this movie, they clearly threw some identifiably Jewish actors in there. So there there was a lot more buried in there than I expected. I thought this was one of their less Jewish movies, but honestly, I think we're going to have a lot that we can jump into. How about you, Daniel? What did you think revisiting I, this movie ahead of the podcast? I mean, the Coens are fast, or the Coens are quickly becoming like a favorite on the podcast. I feel like we've covered Lebowski, we've covered a serious man, and I think that's about it, right? And, but I, you know, I love the movie. Um, you know, part of this podcast is watching movies fairly often. And I was talking to you, Harry, before that, like, for fun, I watched this movie back in December, like apropos of nothing. And then Josh, when we discussed that we were going to actually talk about it, I rewatched it again this week. And I love the whole old Hollywoodness of it all. The art direction is incredible. The attention to detail with the different aspect ratios and the different sound design and it all. And like, I love that the Coens figured out like a device to be able to play with different genres. They're like, how can we squeeze in an aquatic picture and a musical and a swords and sandals epic and all sorts of stuff and really make it look nice and look accurate. And I think they succeeded from that perspective. Um, but I'm excited to talk about the religious angle um, as well. So, yeah. 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 Just going back real quick, Harry, to what you were saying about kind of the, the structure. I mean, I rewatched the trailer this morning and it's super misleading like it makes it seem like it's going to be kind of more of a focus kind of caper with you know baird getting kidnapped and, and mm -hmm. the studio kind of has to like rally and get him back but it's a little more disjointed uh which i thought was you know an interesting bit of marketing so that's definitely what sold me in the first place absolutely and i think even the kidnapping itself it's when it happens i mean there is a degree of you're you're nervous for him and almost immediately that tension goes away when it's right, like right. oh we just we don't want you here we don't really mean any harm he's not actually locked up or anything he's just part of this conversation and eating finger it, sandwiches <laughs> yeah and there's just a tone to it that's like that is not the centerpiece of this yeah. film you know it's not the right. mystery like you're saying of the kidnapping it's it's worth calling out that i think a lot of people were sort of misled 
because of the trailer, but then also because of the star power of this film at the time. We have Channing Tatum um, as Burke Gurney. We have uh, Scarlett Johansson as Deanna Moran. We have Baird Whitlock, our our protagonist, you know, as jo- George Clooney as Baird Whitlock. And then we have Alden Al- I- Ehrenreich. Ehrenreich. Alden Ehrenreich as Hobie Doyle. Uh, so at this time, you know, there were a lot of, a lot of big names uh, you know, in this movie, and I was reading some of the IMDb reviews yesterday, and a lot of people were like, oh, I watched this movie because of Channing Tatum or Scarlett Johansson, and I didn't understand what this was or whatever. (laughs) Then you'd see like a 10 out of 10 for people who were huge fans of 1950s Hollywood and totally got what this movie was trying to do. So it's kind of a mixed bag reception wise, but it's kind of interesting to keep that in mind as we talk about the film. I was thinking, why don't we jump into the plot of the film a little bit? I wanted to talk about that rabbi scene. We've mentioned it a couple of times. It was one of my favorite scenes, even on the rewatch where, you know, I I mentioned this in the synopsis, but they're kind of in this focus group. It's a rabbi. It's a couple of different clergymen, you know, a Protestant, a a Catholic, like they're, they're coming from different backgrounds. And there's this great debate sequence over how can you cast the image of, of God or, or of Jesus specifically on screen. And, you know, obviously I was drawn into the rabbi's responses. He had a great kind of affect, a little bit of, of a kind of classic, like, yeah, whatever, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, that kind of how you'd expect. Maybe we'll we'll clip that in so you don't have to listen to my impression. <laughs> I think it was the, good. Uh, on the I think it was good. <laughs> you think it worked. But, but one of the big interesting things that I pulled from that scene, which I really enjoyed, was, you know, the case that the rabbi makes for not presenting Jesus on screen. He, he basically says, For we Jews, any visual depiction of the Godhead is most strictly prohibited. Oh. And then he does make a comment. But of course, for us, the man Jesus Nazarene is not God. Aha. And that's one of those. And I think the Coen brothers are very good at this from the last two movies we've done. Daniel, Daniel, we've discussed of them and, you know, other movies that they've done, which is they, they have these kind of deep cuts that at least are familiar to my own experience that I've come across before. And they could have just done the whole stereotypical Jew just arguing or whatever. But he makes a point that I think is interesting. And I'll point out before, you know, passing this on to hear your thoughts that he's the one who claims you can't actually have the picture or the the image of, of God on screen. And obviously he says Jesus isn't God to him, but this is a movie where even though there's a big central Jesus character they talk about the whole time, we actually never see his, his face on screen. It's almost like they respect the the practice of the rabbi. That's all ultimately, you know, he has the most influence on the outcome of the movie. We have that big scene at the end when, you know, Baird's performing his final scene towards the face of Jesus, but you only get a shot from behind. You don't actually get to see the face. So I thought that was an interesting touch and a really fun Jewish scene at the top of the movie. Yeah, and there's that great little gag at the start with the, uh, you know, divine presence still to be shot or whatever whatever it says. Right. <laughs> Forgot about that. Screening. Just that first, uh, exactly, when he's watching yeah. the first yeah. run of the movie. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's a very, like, uh, you know, it's like a sensitivity meeting or, or, or just, you know, sort of like feedback, getting feedback from the different faiths, right? So we have our Jewish, we have our rabbi there. We have a, a Catholic, a Protestant, and I want to say maybe like a Greek Orthodox, it sounded like, if, if I had to guess. You know, so we have each each person has like a unique take on on, on this depiction of how Jesus will be portrayed in um, the movie. It's called Hail Caesar, right? The movie that we're discussing in the movie in the movie is called Hail Caesar. Something about some, the tale of the Christ, I think, is the full name. But uh, yeah, he definitely has a lot of good lines the rabbi and you know ultimately his last as as 
Josh Brolin's Eddie Mannix is kind of going around and asking, all right, so what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? The rabbi is at the end, he goes, eh, I don't have an opinion. Like, it's fine. I don't, I don't have a, a dog in this fight. And, and it was very much like the, the pacing of the commentary was very much screwball and like very much Marx Brothers where it was just like joke, 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 joke. And I, I you know, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the Greek Orthodox, um, clergyman when he's like i thought the chariot scene was fakey how is he going to jump from one chariot to the other going full speed <laughs> it's nothing to do with what we're talking about you know just this really great i mean you know it kind of felt like a, an embodiment of you know priest and a rabbi walking to a bar it was right. sort of that kind Literally. of that kind of thing um which yeah it, it is a, a phenomenal scene i think one of the standouts for sure yeah I want to I wanna take this time to run with our, our first, what we call, what Daniel and I call stretch of the pod, which is when we take something that probably wasn't intended, but take it to its, uh, you know, further stretch in the scene. And it actually reminded me, we recently celebrated uh, when we're recording this, the holiday of Purim, which is, you know, a very famous story. And th- this kind of ties into the structure of the whole movie, because like we said, the structure isn't this kind of expected narrative progression of you know this this mysterious plot it really kind of meanders we have all of these different threads right we ha- we're introduced to the issue of Deanna with the baby we're introduced to all these different threads and they all kind of resolve themselves pretty neatly largely in part to Mannix but also kind of divinely you know the, the point of the case I was going to make is that you know Baird is ultimately recovered from his kidnapping I mentioned this from Hobie right Hobie's the one who saved him but the only reason Hobie knew to save him was because Hobie had used his belt to seal up the briefcase that he saw you know uh, Mannix making and the only reason he was in the office was because of this other movie that was totally unrelated to the Baird issue that kind of put him in the office and it it felt almost miraculous and then the stretch what I'm going to make here is that it's very much one of the themes of the Perm story is that God, you know, like we're saying, God's face doesn't appear in this movie. God's name doesn't appear in the Perm story. You know, you never Ooh, kind of know okay. God, but right. there's this there's this sort of divine inspiration behind the story. That's kind of the tradition we're taught that, you know, God was behind the scenes, pulling the schemes, making it all work out in the end. And I think this movie, you know, formally, structurally, I think what the Coen brothers might be doing, or this might be my big stretch, is telling a story that seems very into like disconnected and even by the end of it it doesn't wrap up so neatly it just wraps up almost conveniently and it's this reminder you know the insert god here like we said in that scene is kind of you know divinely inspired and it just reminds me what my one of my favorite bits and then and then i'll wrap this up but is uh at one point in the movie Mannix gets a call from his wife saying you know our our child doesn't want to play shortstop can you call the coach and he like kind of says yeah, yeah i'll call him don't worry I'll, I'll figure it out and then a couple scenes later he says like oh what happened with the baseball game i totally forgot to call the coach and she's like and he did so well he wants to stay there now and he's like huh took care of itself and that to me was kind of a very cool, you know, microcosm for the way the whole movie structures. So, so there's my, my opening stretch. What do you guys think about that? I like it. And, you know, the whole thing with, you know, people dressing up in costumes that also fits. So maybe yeah, this is a per movie. Maybe yeah, we just unlock something. To say maybe. That's, yeah. I mean, you guys should get the Cohen's on the, on the podcast and ask them. Okay. We'll do One, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're actually coming on next week. So that's yeah. perfect. We'll make sure. That yeah, absolutely. That. Um, you know, I think I, I'm with you for some of the way. I might have to get off a few stops early on the stretch train. I do sure. feel like Eddie Mannix's job as a fixer is to fix stuff. And, like, whether that's, like, slapping Baird Whitlock into shape at the end of the movie and being, like, get back to work or, you know, putting Hobie in the right place at the right time so he could be in the Lorenz Lorenz movie and, uh, you know, doing all that stuff. But I do feel like 
there are some things that kind of resolve themselves, but like, you know, Deanna Moran was pregnant and then she gets introduced to Jonah Hill's character and then they end up getting married in the end. So they don't have to do the whole, you know, ruse that they're trying to do. So in some ways, some of the stuff works out, but in some ways I think his hand is, is he's sort of, uh, you know, the, the Mordecai or the Esther, if we want to keep going with this stretch, uh, you know, that like they have a, they have a way to like influence the, the, the power players and, and to make things happen. Um, but I will contradict myself and say that mm-hmm. Eddie Mannix could also, and it's not such a huge stretch that Eddie Mannix is very much in my mind, like a Christ-like figure, you know, technically a Jew. So I think it's appropriate in the context of, you know, of this podcast, oh, but you're saying Jesus is technically a Jew. Yeah. Jesus. Well, Jesus <laughs> is canonically Jewish, but I'm saying right, right. it's it's acceptable on, on, you know, for this podcast. Sure, sure. Um, as the rabbi said, you know, Jesus is not our Lord and Savior, but, you know, we still have an opinion. Uh, I think, you know, Mannix, Mannix is very much like a selfless person and is very much at the service of others. Like he, you know, barely eats in the film. He eats like once with his wife. He's constantly buzzing around and he's always just like making sure that other people are good. So whether that's, you know, a selfless rabbi or a Christ-like figure, I don't know. I just wanted to throw that out there and see what you all thought about that. Yeah, that makes, I mean, yeah, he has all these kind of, I guess, sins, you could say, you know, right. of, this, of the studio stars, you know, thrust upon him, and he's the one who has to kind of deal with it. Um, and just playing on the whole Christ motif, and this is fast becoming a, a Christianity episode, um, like. you know, I, I feel like the Scarlett Johansson character also, like, you know, if, you know, there's a whole talk about the father, you know, who's the father, it's, you know, also playing into the whole, uh, you know, immaculate conception kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's, it's, uh, I don't have anything to add on that. <laughs> but don't we meet him? Don't we meet the father? He's like a Swedish. Oh, that's true. Yeah. He's the director of swinging yeah. dinghies. Um, so, or is that the name true. of the bar? I forget. Oh yeah. I what is know, it called? Man. The movie called. Yeah. When, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause then, cause he wants, Eddie wants him to marry right. uh, Deanna and he's married and. Yeah. He's like, I can't possibly yeah. marry this woman. I'm already married to yeah. this woman. And he but shows then, like, uh, and when yeah. that doesn't work, though, Eddie does kind of send her, her to say, OK, we're going to do this thing where you disappear and then just show up with a baby nine months later that you adopted. Right, right. And he is creating a Mary like figure. So I don't know. You know, Jews on film were really pushing. I mean, this is a Jesus movie, right? The, the center of this movie is Hail Caesar. It's this Jesus film. So obviously the Coen brothers know what they're doing with this. And it's not so far off for us to right. pull in this Christ figure read. But it's, uh, it's an interesting thread. I didn't think we were going to go down this early. So I like it, Daniel. For sure. For sure. Um, you want to, Harry, you want to talk about some communists? What do you think? I think that's yeah? a good call. Yeah. All right, let's do it. All right. So before we do that, Josh. I would be remiss if I didn't bring up your books, uh, Beat the Devils and Sunset Empire, coming out soon, wherever books are sold. Um, I'm doing your work for you. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to see if you could, like, before we talk about the communist writers depicted in Hail Caesar, I wanted to see if we could cut to you and you could give us a little bit of the context corner around some background about the Hollywood Blacklist and the HUAC committee and and sort of in 1950s Hollywood and what that all means for those who are not familiar. Yeah, I mean, oh, it's a whole history lesson. Um, yeah, I mean, in the 50s, you know, people were, Americans were afraid of communists everywhere, seeing communists, you know, in their in their soup or whatever it was. Uh, you know, post-World War II, you know, tensions with the Soviet Union were ramping up. Um, so basically, you know, to be branded a traitor, uh, excuse me, a communist in America and in kind of post-World War II America, you know, 
was to be called a you know traitor to your own country, and uh, the government was seeking out communists not only in its own ranks, you know, in the State Department and, and what have you, but also in Hollywood, um, where some writers were communists, and, and many people were you know brought before the House and American Activities Committee to name names and kind of rat out their colleagues, uh, and a bunch of um, you know screenwriters, directors were blacklisted for having communist affiliations. So it is, um, that's really kind of what my book is about is, it's just kind of exploring this alternate reality where Joseph McCarthy, kind of the face of the red scare, um, became president and, um, all of the kind of, um, paranoia and xenophobia is taken to, you know, hitherto unseen levels. Um, and it seemed to the eyes of this Holocaust survivor who's working for the Los Angeles police department. And he's kind of, you know, seeing history repeat itself. He, gone through the concentration camps during the war. And now he's in America. He came to America to thought it was a land of opportunity, land of democracy, and realized that, uh, you know, it, that history is repeating itself, essentially. So, yeah, I think I mean, I think it's helpful to contextualize a little bit. You know, obviously, the Coens are making a comedy movie, so they're keeping it a little bit light. But I think a lot of, you know, what your books touch about are informed by history. And this movie is informed by history. And like, and in, yeah. There was this Hollywood 10, right? This idea that like 10 people were sort of blacklisted. Um, and a lot of them were Jews. And some of them were names that might be familiar to some folks. But, you know, whether or not they had like a direct connection to communists in Russia, like they do in the film where they're literally like throwing money at Russia and they're getting on submarines. I don't think it was that extensive in Hollywood in real life. That's another alternate version yeah, of the story. For yeah. sure. Make your buck. Um, but I, you know, I think it's important to know that as we're kind of getting into this, the way that these communists are like, you know, jokingly depicted in the film. Sorry, I cut you off, Harry. What did you want to say before I jump in? Just no, I, I just think the film. I really appreciate the context. I think this film is is relying on that context quite a bit. You know, they they kind of throw out the communists, but if you don't know the history of screenwriters, you know, dealing with communism, and it's funny because they talk about how they don't get paid for their movies. They say, you know, where it's, it honestly, it resembles what's going on today. If you're following the industry, there's an upcoming WGA, you know, Writers Guild of America writing strike that's about to happen for very similar reasons that, you know, it's just like an industry thing. So it's just funny seeing the way, you know, the history repeats itself a little bit, but it's interesting because they, they talk about how, they're not getting paid on these movies and that all the money's going to the studio and to the star. And this is, you know, that's why they're doing this kidnap thing. They want to extort the, uh, the studio because they, well, ultimately they don't even need to keep the money, but they at least want to make the, the studio suffer, but they don't really talk about getting blacklisted. And I was wondering if that was just, you know, not true to their experience or just not as far as this movie was going to go. But I also think that it really relies on your knowledge of the relationship between Jewish I mean, Jews to Hollywood, Jews to, you know, communism, you know, there, there's that's a true like, fact that there were a lot of Jews, especially Jewish writers that, you know, flirted with communism quite a bit because it represented, you know, more equality for people that, you know, for a lot of marginalized groups that were not necessarily privileged to that uh, in the country. So I think this movie, even though it's not, not giving you that context over the head, it's kind of using the word communism as a punchline. I think you get a lot of depth and they know that if you really do know the history of here, there's so much more you can pick up on. And I think the three of us all picked up on that quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, oftentimes I feel like communist was also code for Jew. Like people would like, historically speaking, you know, I think, uh, um, and that, you know, sort of it helps out with this particular film in, in this particular scene on this particular podcast in, in a sense that like, like you said, Harry earlier, like, when you know 
Baird is kidnapped. George Clooney's character is kidnapped. He ends up in this really nice house that belongs to Channing Tatum's character, Bert Gurney. He wakes up and there's like a room full of people, a lot of them very Jewish looking. We have Alex Karpovsky, who's a Jew, David Krumholtz, who's a Jew, Fred Malamid, who's who's a Jew. And there's a lot of other people who could theoretically, you know, be Jewish characters or Jewish people. So it's not such a stretch to think that, you know, the idea is that this is a bunch of Jewish writers in Hollywood who are big fans of communism. Uh, and so they start to, you know, educate Baird Whitlock, this sort of like dumb as bricks actor about, about communism. And he really gets into it. They talk about the means of production and they talk about the, you know, man, uh, what is it, the body politic and all these, they throw out all these really big terms. And then we have this sort of old country guy who came up from Stanford in this very like Einstein-like voice, kind of giving over a, a, a shoe or a lesson, so to speak, you know? Um, and so my, my intro stretch to this scene is that instead of wearing black, like these Hasidim are all wearing brown, like all of them were all wearing the same color and they're all like huddled around this old sage-like figure giving over knowledge. So with that, I open it, open up the floor for questions and comments, you know. Well, you guys, uh, you guys really summed it up. And I, I like, you know, just the fact that Baird is like this, he's kind of just like a sponge. Like he just, where, whatever context you put him in, he'll just soak it up. And then Eddie kind of just slaps him back into, uh, into reasoning at the end there, uh, which is really funny um, just to see. I mean, I feel like George Clooney is always kind of the punchline in, in these Coen Brothers movies. Um but um, yeah, yeah, he was. I I just thought he was his character specifically. Baird was really uh, funny in this movie. I mean, he's really hamming it up. I think he played that dumb as bricks, like you were saying before, Daniel, intensely. But I think in these scenes, especially with the communists, he's he is a little bit of the audience conduit to the sense that he's he's asking all these questions. He's like, "So, what do you believe? Why are you doing this?" And that's kind of how we get all that exposition out of it. And you know, I, I was interested in hearing their thoughts. I think it was, uh, I, I was kind of like him, you know, I, I wasn't scared of the kidnapping. I was just, I want to hear more about this. You know, why, right. why do you guys, and what are you hoping to do to dismantle the body politics? So the studio, it, you know, makes the money, but it's also, it's a, what do they call it? Like a, a capitalist instrument that can right. also be used to take down. And it felt like the movie was almost sympathetic towards this group a little bit until sure. kind of like you mentioned that that scene when Baird gets back to set and uh, Mannix just basically slaps him in the face three times and says forget about all of this you work for the studio you belong in the studio system they're paying your bills go back and actually act and that's uh I can't so I, I I'm trying to figure out you know where does the movie come down on these communists you know these Jewish communist characters do we think the movie is sympathetic to them and they had this angle that worked for them and they really were getting screwed out of you know, the money that was owed to them and maybe this was a movement for them or is it these guys are crazy going off on their wild thing. They throw a hundred thousand dollars into the, into the ocean and lose it. These, you know, they're supposed to be the butt of the jokes. How did you guys read those characters in the movie? You know, I think Baird like comes off as like a freshman who just came back from like philosophy class and like really wants to tell all of his friends about like, Oh man, I learned about communism. Let me tell you about it. And Eddie Mannix is like, no, just get back to work. Like, I will say, like, Josh, your your comment earlier about Clooney, you know, George Clooney being this sort of butt of the jokes in these Coen Brothers movies. Like, you see in the last scene, as as silly as he is, he brings the goods in terms of acting. Like, there's not a dry, house, dry eye in the house. Like, the last scene where he's delivering his, like, big speech about Jesus, 
everyone is like choked up and they're crying. And these are the people who are working on set and see this kind of stuff all the time. So he's good at what he does. And I think Eddie Mannix realizes that and is like, stay in your lane, do what you're great at, you know, rather than like give him a pep talk, he kind of gives him a little, to use the term musser, you know, like uh, he gives him a little rebuke and is like, all right, get to it, get back to work. I appreciate that you enjoyed like hanging out with your friends, but like we have a job to do. He's got to keep the trains moving. So, um, yeah, really enjoyed that that whole depiction. I didn't really answer your question, Harry, but I want I want Josh to weigh in. Yeah, uh, it's it's funny. I feel like they are the communist writers are kind of portrayed as as also kind of you know uh, buffoons in a way because they seem also seem to like not really understand. Like they want the money, but like what do they want it for? Like you know, oh, you know, they they throw it to. Um, Shane Tatum's character, then, you know, like, oh, for like the, you know, the cause, like, you know, it just seems like they're so kind of also kind of clueless, to also just kind of spouting all this kind of philosophy. No, they just also seem pretty um, aimless and kind of naive in a way, which is, you know, they, they don't really understand, like, they kidnap this guy, but they don't really have like a firm plan. So it's just, um, it, it, you know, they are, I, I, it is a good question because, like, you know, what is the film trying to say about, is it poking fun at the blacklist? Is it, you know, or, or, or is it say that communists are, are you know, uh, silly individual? I don't know. It's it's a good question. It it really because I agree because it is very goofy the way that they're portrayed and they certainly yeah. are like you said the first gen like you were saying the first year philosophy students I mean they're just spouting buzzwords I think yeah. that's just a running gag someone just keeps saying oh the body politic and they're just all <laughs> echoing the same things right. but I I do think that there's a read of the end right that manic scene where he slaps him back into place as much as that's you know course correcting Baird it's also maybe it's you know putting down this person with his own views it's telling it's telling the actors and you know the, the studio is treating the actors the same way they treated the writers the same way they treated everyone and saying you don't have agency here do your job and there is kind of a dark read on that you know Mannix we, we called him this Jesus-like character you know saving everyone but he's saving the studio and it's it's in some right. ways he, he definitely has relationships with a lot of the actors but a lot of times it's at their expense you know I'm thinking of the Deanna thread where he says there you know you need to preserve your image that's more important for the studio they need to do this so instead of you doing what you want and she clearly says let me raise my baby I don't want to have any husbands I'm kind of happy here he sends her down this path they have this entire scheme they come up with that's just to make that forces her to disappear I mean ultimately she doesn't do it because she gets married to the guy but it almost I, I'm kind of and I'm not saying I'm taking on all of the the communist read and I'm not you know championing a new cause all of a sudden although are you going to become a movie, communist Harry <laughs> I don't off the record off the record we'll talk about that later but um that is not the plan but I do think that this movie is a little bit cynical now that I think about it towards the studio system as much as it reveres it it recognizes that what is the role of a fixer right the protagonist of the movie it's someone to sand off the edges so you don't see any of the dark sides of the Hollywood system and we get this very you know this very pure clean Christian sort of uh depiction of, of what's going on in the studios right and I, I was reading a review um after rewatching it, it, it someone read, said to the effect of um you know, this, this movie is like basically proof that the Coens hate the movie industry. Like it's, I think it's, it is a satirical of all, not just the studio system, but, you know, like just the whole time period in general, kind of this almost Puritan, uh, leave it to beaver kind of, um, you know, when you think about the fifties, you know, you think of like gee whiz and, and, you know, all these like kind of family, nuclear family ideal ideals. Uh, but you know, at the same time you have anti-Semitism, racism, um, homophobia like all this all these um 
there is a dark underbelly to this period that we associate being so uh, wholesome. Um, and I think that kind of is part of part of the message of the film. But, you know. Yeah, no, for sure. It's interesting. Just a, a quick uh, history note. I think at this time, you know, during during the 50s, this is kind of the end of the reign of the studio system where like television is starting to become a thing. So like, you know, I think it, historically speaking, I think Eddie Mannix worked on a lot of movies, you know, in real life, he was connected to the mob. Some, you know, he was implicated in the in the murder of George Reeves, the original Superman. I read a little, I went on a rabbit hole yesterday. Like his wife was like having an affair with this, with the Superman guy. And then his, the wife like ordered his, allegedly ordered his killing. It was a whole thing. So they definitely cleaned up Eddie Mannix. But I think what you were saying about, you know, the studio system and then where we're at in history, I think it was, it's very much like where we are now with streaming, how streaming is very much taking over the actual movie going experience. So it's, we're at that point in the film. And I think, you know, certainly uh, with Eddie Mannix's looming job offer with Lockheed, you know, I think he even says something to the effect of, oh, like the studio system's dying. You should come work for Lockheed because they're starting to do, you know, H-bombs and talking about Bikini Atoll and all those historical things that they throw in there. So it's kind of an interesting place to be. And and to and I think it's really only like one day, right? This is a day in the life of Eddie Mannix, but it's almost like a full 24-hour cycle because he works super hard. Right. And I should mention, uh, and I'll give you guys the exclusive on my, in my new book, Eddie Mannix does have a cameo, does make an appearance. Um, so that was kind of me paying homage to this film. And, and you know, in this, in this reality, the Jews, you know, who kind of helped build up the, the entertainment industry have all been ousted and all the studios have been brought under the one government umbrella. Um, so in this book, it's revealed that Jews have started to have moved into the porn, pornography industry. I've started to make it more um, kind of it's it's the, the film that you know these skin flicks so to speak are becoming more refined and more um, respectable than what the government is turning out, which is just all this anti-communist propaganda. So uh, Eddie is working for this underground pornography studio system. Cool. Um, you just keep an eye out for him. Excited to check it out. It's it's a really interesting take on Eddie. I mean that's. Because I think that really parallels what's happening in this movie. Because everything we're saying, I totally, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing now is that he's, he's really softening the edges of just what's a much more complicated. And in some ways, the movie is is guilty of that. In some ways, you know, we were talking about the the communists and the oppression, the persecution, and the Jewishness of them, and it's it's played for jokes. This movie is, this movie is almost about the way that the these glamorized depictions of the 50s the way you're describing always soften the edges make things a little bit more like you're saying you know highbrow you know comparing it to the uh to like to, to your book a little bit but the way that you kind of elevate that story and it does a really good job at hinting at and it shows i mean it, it follows this character of Mannix and kind of shows how he is making an image while they're also presenting this image that's just a little bit more uh that's a little bit more pristine a little cleaner than what was probably happening under the sur under the surface but it's uh, it's it's really doing it. It, it makes for a really interesting uh, parallel. Did you guys see that movie Babylon that came out this year? I was going to bring that up. This movie kind of feels like a forerunner, like the whole absolutely twat, the whole Hobie Doyle, you know, scene when they're trying to get the line right. Reminded me of the um, with Margot Robbie. You know, they're trying to record sound for the first time and they can't get it right. So I feel like 
Hail Caesar walked so Babylon could run. And I, I don't think it's just inspiring Babylon, although I do think that, you know, we, maybe we'll cover Babylon in a future episode, but that movie very liberally takes from a hundred other movies. I hadn't thought about Hail Caesar till we rewatched it, but now it's like, yeah, they're they're definitely playing with that same anxiety of transitioning, you know, character or right, actors right. from, you know, actors to very talk heavy roles that weren't previously in those. But I think that it also fits into this parallel we're setting of the way that Hail Caesar is about the movies about how the edges were softened and doesn't mm-hmm. show any of the harsh edges, but kind right. of alludes to them. Babylon is almost like the movie that it's it's the movie that would exist without Mannix, without Mannix kind of softening the edges. And right. it's that movie is showing. And for those who haven't seen that movie, it is, you know, over the top, highly grotesque, pornographic, intense. I mean, it's, it's a great movie. I highly recommend it. But um, but that movie is showing, you know, the worst sides of the underbelly and the worst kinds of, you know, violence and drug use and, you know, uh, racism that that existed in the industry at that, at that time. And it's just, it's interesting. It's cool the way that this movie, that Hell Caesar, the one we're talking about, alludes to all that stuff, but never really gets into it the way that it really yeah. could have, like we saw. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would make a good double feature, but if Babylon wasn't three hours long, you know. Right. It would make a good double a feature if you have yeah. about six hours right. on, a, on a Wednesday night. Half a day. I feel like I feel like Josh, you just mentioned um my character of the movie, Hobie Doyle. And so I would uh you know, I want to talk about Hobie a little bit. Again, played by Alden Aaron Reich. Um and you know you talked about that scene uh, for, you know, my money, probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie where he's talking to Ray Fiennes, who plays Lorenz Lorenz, uh, you know, the drawing picture director. Um, and we and we talk about there's so much to cover on him. But I, I I think that scene was like very much a Coen Brothers scene where it's just like slapstick comedy, very fast pacing. They do comedy so well. And it was all like very accurate in terms of like Again, I was gushing earlier about the art direction, but like the way that the set is constructed and the way that you see these huge cameras and the microphones and they're constantly slating similar to Babylon, you know, constantly have that slate to kind of reset the scene. Uh, But the squeaky shoes and everything, I wanted to get your thoughts on on that scene. Yeah, it is a a phenomenal scene. And I think it's kind of a shame that um, Aaron Reich hasn't had more roles um, because after watching like this, I think this was like his first big movie. Mm -hmm. Um, and then and I the think whole he, Solo debacle. Right, I was going to uh, say, he was put in the doghouse after know. Solo flopped. Oh, really? Was, was that fault. not received well? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, like, didn't make a ton, a ton of money. I think it made, like, a profit, but, like, it didn't make a billion dollars, you know. So Lucasfilm scrapped all these prequel films. Ah, but... But, um, but I think, like, just watching this, like, he embodies this character. Like, he's just such, like, a kind of, like, a sweet, innocent soul. You know, he just kind of, he doesn't, you know, he's not in it really for the money or, or the fame. He's just kind of, I don't know. He's just kind of just like, you know, put me wherever and I'll, and I'll do what you tell me. But um, yeah, I think it's, it's kind of a, a nice counterpoint to these other characters who are doing a little more shady things and, and kind of have these ulterior motives. Whereas Hobie's just kind of like, I guess you could, if there is a hero, I mean, I guess Eddie is, but he's kind of the, the second hero, I guess, second right. protagonist. Sure. He, he definitely gets, I mean, he definitely gets the hero moment at the yeah. end when he's the one who discovers the briefcase, goes and rescues Baird. And it's not this triumphant battle sequence when he gets to Baird. He's just right, sitting exactly. there alone in the house and he's like, you're coming with me. And he brings him back. It's a little anticlimactic, but he is right. the one who, you know, takes the initiative, acts as that sort of old Western star that he was and and saves the day. So I would definitely call him, you know, protagonist B at the very yeah. least. I mean, I, I wonder what that like final battle scene would have looked like between Baird Whitlock and Hobie Doyle, these two like 
tough actors and like a room full of sort of nebbishy communist writers who were like, nah, nah, you can have him. You can go. <laughs> Turns out they were like, you know, running, you know, they were rowing a boat with Bert Gurney to take him to the Soviet sub at the end. But yeah, you're right. It was kind of anticlimactic. And I think, um, you know, they were like, hey, it, it was almost reminding me of like Star Wars, you know, where like the the trap door opens and Luke pops in and is like, hey, come on, let's go. It's like it's like a very, very easy sort of rescue. Um, obviously, less stormtroopers in this movie. But, you know, I think it was a pretty, pretty easy win for Hobie Doyle. Uh, I did appreciate his spaghetti and lasso handiwork. Allegedly, that was like the hardest part of the film for him to figure out. He spent a lot of training, like doing all that lasso work and you know, wanted to call that out. Um, I do have some thoughts on Hobie, but I do want to save that for the rating um, towards the end because Hobie's, you know, he holds a special place in my heart in this film. So wanted to, you know, give him the credit he's due, but later at a later time. Yeah. Have you guys seen Cocaine Bear yet? I have not. Have you? Have you seen it, Harry? I haven't yet, but I was trying to remember the movie that he just showed up in. But yeah, yeah. it's like this, like his first starring role since i think solo so wow, he's really? also in the brave new that brave new world series on peacock okay oh cool that was uh but yeah he's good in cocaine bear but he's better in hail caesar yeah i mean the the whole line and there's also i, I i'm help me out here like i have I have a stretch i have my ticket but i'm not quite ready to go on the, the stretch train like what's the connection between hobie doyle's discovery of the briefcase that Burt Gurney is taking, and then also the discovery of the valise in the actual movie. Like in both movies, he's discovering a suitcase or valise, which is like another word for a suitcase. But I'm not sure if there's a connection or if it's just sort of like, oh, hey, this is fun. They're both discovering suitcases. I'm not sure. Is that to too me? Go ahead. No, like to me, it plays into his whole, you know, at the end when he saves the day, so to speak, he's acting as a character in a movie. I mean, it's very. You know, from a from a meta level, it's the most like like I was saying in terms of the structure of the movie, the way everything almost resolves itself very cleanly, and it's yeah. a lot of talking and it's a lot of convincing. You know, Mannix's mm -hmm. style is he just goes to the right person in the right place, tells the right people, pays. You know, we we didn't mention that scene earlier when he pays off the cops who you know to to stop because one of the actors is taking pictures, kind of uh, that right. he doesn't want the studio to get out. Like that's how he acts, but for Hobie. The only way he knows how to act is to do these really bold, actorly, you know, action right. star kind of moves. And I half expected the movie to end with him showing up the, up the house and, you know, violently getting right. shot at or, or something aggressive because he's like, what is he doing? He doesn't actually know how to do this in real life. Right, right. Except Hobie, we did mention, you know, he wasn't really an actor or a movie star. He was just a guy that was on a ranch doing some tricks and someone discovered him and mm -hmm. roped him into the studio, so to speak. Yeah, he's like the one genuine individual. Like he's not going back you know what i was like he's he's not like two-faced or anything or like trying to put out an image that that isn't accurate to him. Yeah. you know he's just hanging you know he's standing outside the car he pulls the, the lasso out and starts jumping you know doing tricks with it so yeah he's like he's too good for this for this world yeah he's, he's too good and it's, it's for the better like i'm remembering you know obviously the famous scene is when he says when he can't deliver the line would that it were so simple in uh in the lawrence lorenz movie say your line exactly as i'm about to just as i'm about to do Sure. Okay. Would the tattoo so simple? 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 My dear boy, why do you say that? Why do you say tattoo? Well, you should say it like I said. Yes. Would the tattoo so simple? 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 Watch my mouth. Would the tattoo so simple? Would the tattoo so simple? Keep your head still. Would the tattoo so simple? 
Will the detour system? I'm trying to say that, Mr. Lorenz. And there's this great moment where we watch it on a clip. We we kind of see the reels back and we see him perform it. And he, you know, he gets that line and he's set up to say it. And you're like, is he going to do it? Like, this is the final take. And he goes, it's complicated. And it's right. just, and I just thought it was a great punchline. And honestly, the movie's probably better for it, you know, for right. that line. Like that, that reads much better than him trying to put on this fancy thing. Because it's, it's genuine. It feels like a real, what a real person would say, a real reply. Hobie is... You know, he's the only one who's not fake in this kind of plastic city, so to speak. Right. I mean, we're introduced to Hobie when he's on set doing his cowboy picture and he does this like backflip on the tree and he's like very good at what he does in cowboy land. And then he's like taking a break. Um, he's eating his franks and beans. And then someone is like, you're, su you're supposed to report to the studio. Uh, the studio's changing your image. And like, so then he goes from this Western look and Western cowboy movie to this drawing room picture but he doesn't really change his image he just like changes his clothes like you were saying his josh you were saying that you know he doesn't change and that's for the better like i, I think that is true and uh i think it's yeah he's still the same hobie very much so he just has a tuxedo so um yeah um i'm trying to think if there's anything else i wanted to cover about the movie um you know i don't like the 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 Thora and Thackeray or what were their names? Thessaly and Thor and Thessaly, right? Yeah, I I didn't know what to make of that. I don't have much to say on those uh, those two uh, characters played by Tilda Swinton. Um, yeah, she seems kind of a little bit. I mean, it makes for some good like again kind of slapsticky right. dialogue. I think she's kind of based on Hedda Hopper, who was like mm -hmm. a gossip gossip columnist at the time. Um, but yeah, like you know, it just goes back to what you're saying about how like this film. It could have been, there is a lot of potential here and it is a great film, but like it didn't live up to kind of the premise that it promised. Um, so it kind of just has these kind of disparate elements that don't really coalesce. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like a lot of these movies that are set in this time period, it, it doesn't necessarily rely on, but it definitely rewards people who are much more familiar with the history. And even, yes. you know, when you say that it's based on a real gossip columnist, I'm like, oh, that's actually kind of cool that they were pulling off of that. And that would have been a real part of his job would be fending off these gossip columnists. But um, but yeah, but I think in the structure of the movie itself, it's it's something that seems intriguing. They have this big threat that they're going to run this story unbared, and then it kind of resolves itself in a way that... I think the movie, like we said, is, is thematically doing the whole time just resolving these big issues. But in this in this one context, it felt a little underwhelming, I'd say. Sure. Right. And it, and yeah, and Eddie at the end is like, yeah, if you run that story, you'll be branded a communist because you're sourcing right. a communist. Kind right. of just kind of uses that as a hand waving. But like at the time, like that would have been like not just the end to your career, but potentially your life. You go to prison if you were branded a communist. So again, it's kind of making light of that period but that's kind of the i guess that's the point of the film it's just like this whole time period these people like this industry is just ridiculous um and you know not only is the industry ridiculous the government was ridiculous for just like not letting people just be politically affiliated with whoever they wanted to be so you know i think that's kind of just everybody's goofy in, in this in early 50s hollywood it's yeah, it's yeah. another hinting at what's a really, really dark reality yeah. and playing it off as a joke in the way that this movie, it really, it, it it's the perfect double feature to Babylon. I mean, it really sets you up like, you know, something's under the surface after watching right. this movie and then Babylon, it doesn't really get into communist, but it's let's see what's actually under yeah. that surface. Yeah, different time period, but for sure, like, I think that would be an interesting pairing. So if you want to watch Hail Caesar and then watch Babylon, feel free to email us and let us know what you thought. 
we'd love to get your thoughts or follow us on social media and, you know, hit us up on Twitter or whatever. But um, I do want to save some time uh, so that we can discuss a few categories as we're rating the film. You know, this is Jews on Film, and so we do have to give it a rating and talk about some categories. But let's take a quick break, and we'll come back, and we'll discuss and rate, and we'll kind of give our final thoughts on Hail Caesar. Does that sound good? All right. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Josh Weiss to discuss what we thought about the film Hell Caesar, directed by the Coen brothers. So, Harry, I understand that we have some new categories this week to introduce, so I'm going to toss it to you. Yes, exactly. So for uh, longtime listeners, we're changing things up a little bit. We're going to still do content cast screw themes, all of the Jewish rankings. But before we get to that, we just wanted to throw in a, a couple quick rapid fire categories, just talk about you know, the Jewishness of the scene after we've already unpacked most of it. So I'll get us started off pretty simple, straightforward one. But what would you guys say? And we don't have to agree. We could put up different votes. But what was just the, the most Jewish scene of the film? You know, full stop. If you wanted to point someone, you know, this is where it gets the most Jewish. And I think there's a couple of categories, but I have one in mind that or a couple options. But I have one in mind that I think is uh, is going to be my pick. But I'll let you guys go first. Josh, you're our guest. Um, yeah, I'd say the the whole clergyman scene with the rabbi, I think that is kind of the most Jewish, you know, I have no opinion. All right. <laughs> I think I think it might even, if we don't even say scene, if we just say, you know, which shot, right, it could be those, those yeah. four seconds of, uh, yeah. eh, you know. Right. I, yeah. Is that your vote too, Harry? I think so. I, I okay. thought I was going to be really crafty and creative here and say, well, it's not explicitly Jewish, but there's there's such a Jewishness. And you could say maybe for the communist scenes, you know, maybe that first hey, meeting hey, of the communist. You're stealing my... <laughs> I don't want to step on it, so I'll, I'll let you finish it. But that, that might have been a second. So, Daniel, make the case for it. And I'll, I mean, uh, I I'll, think... I guess I'll choose which one I... Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to probably go with the communist scene. I think the... Like I was telling you before, um, you know... I, I felt like you were really hot on this like representation of the rabbi in the movie. And I was like, yeah, that was like a throwaway gag the same way that they are poking fun at all these other types of people, you know? Uh, so I thought that I was just like, yeah, it was fine. It was like nice to see a rabbi on screen and have, have this sort of like Larry David affect about stuff. But to me, that wasn't as Jewish. I'm, I uh, sort of like the stretches a little bit more and, and something that, was intended but not intended. So I'm going to go with the this this introduction of our communist writers and our discussion and our sage-like communist leader uh, philosopher guy. So that's my vote. But yeah, where are you weighing yeah. in, Harry? You're not sure. I know. I, I hate to be the uh, the tiebreaker, but no, that that was a pretty good case. And I was thinking the way I pitched this category as you know, what would you show to someone and say, look at how Jewish this movie is? And yeah, I think the amount of time we spend with the communists and kind of seeing their you know, their humor, their affect. I, I do think that there is some Jewishness there. So I don't know. Part of me still wants to give it to the rabbi scene. Because Come in, I mentioned, Harry. Come on. There's, I just, I like the way that they allude to, you know, these ideas of representation of, of God on screen. And I think that's pretty telling. Okay. I'm going to still go with that scene. As one isolated scene, right. that's right. where I was like, you know, give us some Jewish representation. Love it. Great, likable rabbi character. So uh, I think right. I'm going to side. I'm going to side with you, Josh. I'm out here on the cold by myself awesome. with that scene, but that's fine. <laughs> let's let's move on to our next category, the stretch of the pod, right? So anything that's not intended by our filmmakers. Um, not necessarily intended. Not, they, right. they might have been. You know. Right. We, we don't know. Again, Josh, like we said, we're going to have the Coens on next week. So then we'll ask yeah. them specifically. Yeah. But I think, you know, anything <laughs> that like seems to to you or like you would like to to submit 
for our consideration and for our listeners' consideration as something that was maybe not exactly intended, but ended up being a little bit loosely connected to Judaism? Um, you know, it's, I don't know how much of a stretch it is, just when you were talking about, you know, when the communists are rolling out to meet the uh, Soviet submarine, the sky almost looks like kind of like a stormy sky you'd see in like an old Hollywood picture, like the Ten Commandments, almost mm. like it kind of looked sort of fake. Yeah. To me, I don't know if that's what, like, I feel like some shots in the film like are meant to kind of recall that, you know, kind of phony, you know, pre-CGI mm-hmm. visual effects age. Um, so yeah, I'll say, you know, that kind of brought to mind the Ten Commandments, especially when, you know, Moses parts the Red Sea. So Interesting. Oh. I, I got a, I I got really, a very, like, Washington crossing the Delaware vibe. Do you know that painting? Oh, yeah. I actually just yeah, saw that painting good, recently. A, and oh, I, you did? Nice. I definitely think there was some intention there with the way they're positioned on the boat. But right. I really like the Ten Commandments read because sure. now that I think of it, that scene, it really feels like it's like they're in a pool on a lot with, with a fully right. painted backdrop. Like, you don't right. think that they're actually on the water. And I don't know how they filmed it. But it's definitely evocative of this big climactic scene, you know, and maybe the tossing of the briefcase is like, maybe it's like smashing the lucha, right? Or smashing oh, the, okay. the tablets yeah, that, you know, th- this big important thing kind of gets destroyed, washed away in the water. Right. So uh, I'll, I'll give it to you. It's pretty good. Right. Because, you know, to communists, you know, money is not, money is the is the golden calf in a way. It's it's kind of the false idol. Uh, so so they, they let it go right. into the water. I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's almost it's so it's so funny. We spend so much time like getting the money, hiding the money, picking up the money, transporting the money, and then they throw it and it their their reaction is so priceless. They're all like, ah <laughs> Cause like Burke Ernie yeah. ends up getting his dog instead of the briefcase and he drops the briefcase and yeah, there goes that. I think that that is the moment I think where the communists are sort of deflated as like these characters to be feared or to be taken seriously. So Harry, how about yourself? So I mentioned a couple uh, stretches earlier, but I was saving a different one that I had. And I'm not sure how far I can go with this, but uh, talking to your favorite character, Hobie, Daniel, who, who That's I know my you guy. Love. That's my guy. When he is having, right, he he's he doesn't quite have a speech impediment. He just really is out of sorts with his language. I mean, first of all, that was evocative of a lot of the ideas we've spoken about, Daniel, with, you know, immigrants coming with, with English being their second language and the way that that mirrored a lot of the early, you know, probably of that era Jewish experience of Jews coming on with maybe thick European accents. So there was something there of him being a stand-in for, and I don't know, is Alden Ehrenreich, is he Jewish? Do we know? Yes, so he yeah. is. I'm yeah, he was getting a big discovered novel. by Spielberg at a bar mitzvah, actually. That's amazing. So you know what? Yeah. I'm doubling down on this. This was intentional. <laughs> he is that stand-in for the Jews kind of breaking in and, and reshaping. I mean, I guess early, early Hollywood, the Jews definitely were uh, firmly rooted there. But the only other biblical stretch I wanted to connect it to was it also, and I'm, I'm really, I guess I'm, I'm layering this this uh, stretch. I love of a layer cake. Let's but it, do it. It reminded me also of, you know, Moshe, of, of Moses in the way that he's also not a very gifted orator. He's not able to communicate, you know, on the level of the people around him. But he does prove himself with action, and I think that's exactly what Hobie's doing. By the end of it, he, you know, he's he's ringing the, uh, he's 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 doing the lasso around his finger. He's doing it with the uh, with the with the spaghetti. spaghetti. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's uh, he's saving the day. He's saving Baron. So you know, Hobie equals you know immigrant Jew slash Moshe is how I would define my kind of my kind of stretch. So okay. there, there goes my like stretch that. to the pot. Even say the 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 uh, spaghetti was like the snake. That his staff became like his staff. Ooh. Yeah, you just added sprinkles well. to that layer of cake. I love it. <laughs> That's great. 
Yeah. I'm gonna stick. I'm gonna stick with my buddy Hobie, um, and just say that, uh, like, like you were saying, Harry, I'm gonna maybe add a little bit to it. Like, Hobie's wearing a black hat in a scene, so there's that, you know, aspect mm. to his Jewishness, you know. So he's literally a black hatter, uh, but also just like his outsider status, kind of like what you were talking about, Harry. You know, he's this cowboy who fits in in a very specific desert region hmm, middle eastern you know whatever why not and and then i think once he goes inside to this other land this other place that's completely different he's an outsider but ultimately he has like a good heart so i think he's he's my sort of jewish character for the film not such a huge stress as we've discovered but i think there's a case to be made um for him but this film overall harry you want to hit us with our last category Sure. The last one is, uh, is a little bit of a more simple kind of yes or no question, of course, with room to elaborate. But this is one we've asked before in earlier episodes, but we're bringing it back. And is this movie good for the Jews? Do you think people watching this are like, hmm, how about those Jews or or maybe not as uh, as kind to them? Um, uh, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's. It's a, it's a good question because the whole thing is about this production of, you know, Jesus and then his death is, you know, kind of the source of a lot of anti-Semitism throughout the century. So, um, but I'd say, you know, you know, the rabbi is a bit of a caricature, but I'd say it's, it's all right for the Jews. Okay. I guess yeah, that's not really I, a yes I, or no answer, but yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a perfect answer for this, but I, I think I'm similar with you. I think the, the rabbi who's the most identifiably Jewish character in the movie for those, especially who aren't as familiar with the history, like we're talking about of the communist characters, you know, he's really that kind of Jewish stand in. And yeah, I, I agreed with you bordering on, uh, on being just a little bit over the top, a little bit of a caricature. So parts of me were a little uncomfortable with it, but ultimately we're not uncomfortable, but just unsure of how it would play. But uh, but ultimately, I think it's pretty fine. And, and I think also with the communism, you know, the communists, if we recognize them to be the Jews of the film, we already mentioned this, but I think the movie's more sympathetic to them than not. I actually don't think this is an anti, I mean, it's, it's not really endorsing communism, but it's not an anti-communist character film. It really is a little bit more nuanced than they probably were suffering from the hands of the studio system. So yeah, they're zany. They take this weird route. They, they meet a, a submarine from Mother Russia in the middle of the ocean, but you know, these, these characters are fine. So I also give it kind of mixed positive. Daniel, do you agree with us? I think so. I think there's other Jews that we really haven't talked about. Like Nick Skank in the film is play or is, is an homage to Joseph Skank who kind of helped Daryl Zanuck, uh, Daryl Zanuck like form 20th century pictures and then they he's merged the, it. Uh, he's the studio head. Right. So that's uh, Eddie Mannix's boss. And so he's kind of the, the root cause of this, you know, we could see him as like the reason that Eddie Mannix is so wound up and so worried about his job. And, you know, so he's kind of there off screen, you know, doing his thing in New York. Um, we have some other Jews like the communists, like you mentioned, who are explicitly Jewish and things like that. So, yeah, I probably go with like a meh, you know, not like a strong look for the Jews overall. I think it's just fine. But uh, yeah, I think now it's time to get down to brass tacks and give our ratings because, you know, on a scale of one to five Jewish stars of David, how Jewish is this film? Would you say that this is like a not so Jewish film, a one or like this is the most Jewish film you've ever seen? Josh, you want to give us uh, get us started or do or go ahead, Terry. I'll, I'll start us off just Harry, so you want to get us started? I think it through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure, I sure, think sure. it's always good for. Yeah, sure. Let me toss to you real quick. Harry, do you want to get us started? Yeah, definitely. I I think this is, you know, we we normally talk about cast and crew. I mean, this is a Coen Brothers movie. And I think 
we haven't covered all their movies, nor have I seen all their movies, but I'm getting the read that there's a Jewishness. It's an aspect. It's an aspect to, you know, a lot of what they, what they put out, what they write, what they direct. So I definitely think that's lending a lot of Jewishness. I think in terms of thematically, we didn't get into this too deep, but there's a lot of questions about guilt, confession, and sin. And the truth is, this is going to get a little dicey because that's definitely bordering on a very Christian telling of the story. And those themes, you know, there's a lot of overlap and it's not like it's open to interpretation. I mean, he's confessing to a priest in a confessional. So it's it's very clearly uh, Christian inspired, but there is some overlap there. And I think those questions of, you know, guilt and feeling guilted and guilty, I think we, we recognize as Jewish, but maybe I'm not going to give so much credit to that being a Jewish thing just because of where it is. So with those two and with the plot not centering too much on Jewishness and really, I mean, we, we opened this discussion talking about how, you know, Mannix is a stand-in for Jesus. Like this is probably, you're not going to mistake this for a Jewish movie over, it's probably like 70% Christian, 30% Jewish is where I'm going on the religious aspect of the movie. So I'll, I'll hold off on my actual number for uh, everyone to get a chance to go through what they think, but I don't think this is going to be more Jewish than not for me. That's kind of where I'm leaning. But uh, how do you feel about it, Josh? Did this feel like a Jewish movie when you watched it? You know, um, not really. I mean, you know, I, I recently interviewed um, uh, Eitan Cohen, who's like a screenwriter director. Um, and we were talking about his work on Men in Black 3 and how he was kind of uh, uh, inspired to write it, you know, by, based on teaching of, teachings of the Rambam. Um, and like the stuff you read in the run-up to Yom Kippur. And it, so he's like, you know, it... it my Judaism, Judaism is always going to find some find its way in some form into what I do. So I think, as you were saying, uh, Harry, you know, it, it, the Collins can't help but include some of these themes, even if it's not intentional. You know, it's 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 there, it's subtextual. Um, so yeah, I, I'd agree with your your assessment that you know, seventy percent Christian, thirty percent Jewish. It's not like a serious man where the whole thing is you know <laughs> very Jewish. So yeah, I think it, you know it has elements of Judaism. And um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I I would agree. I think, uh, you know, there are certainly more Jewish films, especially even in the Cohen canon. Uh, do people say that? Uh, and then I, I, you know, I think there are, by virtue of the fact that it's in Hollywood in the 1950s, there's certainly a lot of Jewishness around, whether it's explicit or not. But, you know, overall, it, it you know, on the surface level, you know, it wasn't such a Jewish film, um, but, you know, I'll, I'll get us started with our ratings if that's okay. Um, I, I'll probably just end up giving it like a two and a half. You know, that's where I'm at. Harry, Josh? What is it, what is it out of? Uh, it's out of five. Out of five. out of five. And it's just how Jewish it is, not quality of the movie. Based on, you know, cast and crew, content and themes. So like the story of it and then like the sort of deeper meanings that we've uncovered throughout this discussion today. Taking in all the stretches, all the stretching that we've done, I'll, I'll give it a three and a half. It. Three and a half. Okay. Healthy score. Love it. Harry. I think, I don't know. I think when I was talking through it, I was trying to, you know, that, that always, especially with movies where it's, you know, on the edge, it's always a question of, well, is it two and a half plus two and a half minus, right? More Jewish, less Jewish. And, I kind of came out on this. It's it's so hard because comparing it to most mainstream Hollywood films, I mean, it's, you know, it's probably a four, but comparing it to, you know, the Cohen canon, as you uh, termed it before, Daniel, and maybe should get that copyrighted. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know. It just felt like 
it felt like like I was saying before that Jewishness and, and the Jewish angle was not the first thing that they were putting pen to paper. It was mostly telling this Hollywood story through the lens of Christianity. And maybe that was supposed to play off strongly off the communists and off the Jewishness there. But I didn't feel that as much. I felt a lot more of the, the Christianity kind of bleeding through in terms of the religious component of this movie. So I'm giving it closer to, I think, a two out of five. A little two. bit below okay. two and a half. So I guess on the lower end of our three ratings. So two, two and a half, and then three and a half. Okay. Again, not not at all an indication of how much we loved or didn't love this film. Just mostly um, as a sort of sort of thought experiment for the podcast, and and just you know, again, I I feel I'm calling it now. I think 2023 is going to be the year when movies start putting our juice on film rating on their movie posters. Like forget Rotten <laughs> Tomatoes. I think I think this is our year. Um, right, it's like the Bechdel test for totally, hundred percent, exactly. Yeah, uh, Josh Weiss, thank you so much for being here on Jews on Film uh, to discuss the film Hail Caesar. Can you tell us a little bit more about your new book, Sunset Empire, and where people can find it, and when people can find it? Yeah, so I mean, so first book, Beat the Devils, the paperback edition is coming out March twenty second. Ooh, um, all right. Nice. Hardcover is is out everywhere. Uh, Sunset Empire comes out March twenty eighth. It is a sequel to Beat the Devils. Uh, Morris Baker returns. He is now working as a private investigator, still kind of haunted by his past as a Holocaust survivor. Uh, when a woman approaches him to find her husband, who just so happens to be a State Department consultant named Henry Kissinger. Um, and the book opens with a terrorist attack, a suicide bombing in a department store and a Korean American man um, kills himself uh, protesting the Korean War, which is still going on in this timeline. It's sort of like the Vietnam of this universe, uh, which is kind of what helped McCarthy get into power. And this war is going on. This he's pro- So that's kind of looming in the background. And that kind of fits in. Won't say how, but yeah, it's a, it's a fun, I think, noir mystery. And, you know, Eddie Mannix pops up and some other familiar Hollywood people so i hope you enjoy it nice that sounds amazing i'm i'm uh i've got about like 100 pages left and beat the devils i'm really really enjoying it so really well done on that that book uh, and i can't wait to check out sunset empire we'll put a link to the show notes of all the stuff all your social stuff and whatever but yeah thanks again um and uh really appreciate you joining us today thanks so much for having me guys jews on film is hosted and produced by harry ottensasser and daniel zana Harry edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening.